Welcome to the Less Matters podcast. This is a podcast not just for those people interested in large-scale Scrum, oh no. This is a podcast for anybody who wants to know how to make single or multi-team agile work in any product-led or project-driven organization. I'm Ben Maynard. And with over a decade of experience leading Agile in organisations both huge and small, I am uniquely placed to interview some of the best and brightest minds on topics that will help you be the best Agile practitioner you could possibly hope to be. In this first episode of two, we find Saloni Seth Watkins, ex-director of performance and talent at a well-known European bank, sharing real-world insights into how you can make Scrum work at scale when all the odds are seemingly against you. Now, before we begin, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or any other podcast platform of your choice. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Less Matters podcast. Today, we are joined by, and I feel like I say this every time, I think so far I have said this every time, maybe these people aren't really my friends and I'm just making this up. But I think this time, maybe I'm not making it up because we are joined by my friend, ex-colleague, confidant. Uh, Saloni Seth Watkins. Uh, Saloni and I worked together for many years in a couple of different banks. So it's uh, nothing but a joy to bring her onto the show today to share a little bit about her less story. And I think through conversation, some of our less stories as well. So Saloni, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Do you want to tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm Saloni. My agile journey, I suppose, started about 20 years ago. That's how old I am. So I started my career in um, consultancy, one of the big five, where I was basically a tester. So always sort of at the end of the process, um, found that very frustrating. Thought there must be a better way. There must be a way that I can get in at the front of the process because I'm always at the end of this. So found my way through, worked in a number of startups in the Middle East, in telcos. And I think that's when organically, I suppose, I started to work in a much more agile way. Still at this point, I suppose it was a lot of it was self-learned, um, sort of stumbling on things and thinking, actually, that makes sense. Finally, um, came back to the UK, started working in a much more agile-like environment, started to really learn about Scrum and uh, at that time, SAFE. And then it was many years later that I was on a training course at Royal Bank of Scotland, as it was then, uh, given by my friend Ben Maynard, that suddenly had my eureka moment about less, because suddenly it all came, it all came together for me. It's like, aha, this works, this works for me. Um, so ever since then, I've really worked in the less framework um, across a couple of banks. And actually, right now, believe it or not, I'm sort of helping do a less framework in in aviation. There are still some principles on it that you can actually move across different industries. So uh, I suppose that's my background. Thank you. I think that we need to talk about the less less principles in aviation, because I know I get asked a a number of times about less in non-IT environments. So maybe we can uh, have a recorded conversation about that one day. Now, I know we were going to talk a little bit about some stories but there was something you said then, which I wouldn't mind just focusing on for a few moments. You mentioned that you came on my course and then it all came together a little bit for you. What what was the problem with, I suppose you mentioned SAFE or other approaches you'd used in the past that kind of contrasted so much from what you picked up in my course? I, I suppose one of the things that when people talk about agility, 
generally people talk about one or two things. They talk about the values, which I think people quite understand they can grab hold of. And they talk essentially about Scrum. So the mechanics of Scrum. And that's fine, but it's um, it doesn't cover the whole picture. The, the beauty of less for me, the framework, is it's multifaceted. It, it covers a whole range of things. It talks about systems thinking, queuing theory, the role of a manager. Uh, it talks about how you should uh, invest in people. It's a complete story. So for me, agility has always been about three things. It's not. It is about the scrum mechanics. It's about how you work the team, but. Also, there are two other really important strands. One is the organizational design that enables you to work in that kind of scrum environment. And the other third is technical excellence or, 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 you know, the way that you would handle your code. I found in all of my learnings to that point, it, it was very patchy to find something that sort of helped bring that together cohesively. I think going on my first less course, because I've been on a few, it really ignited that kind of thinking and, and, and gave me ways. It didn't give me all the answers, but it certainly gave me um, uh, so, so places to go and look, paths to follow, which meant that when we were both working at Deutsche Bank together and I was a director there of uh, performance management and talent, I, could, I felt I could bring it all together and make it a much more robust, holistic way of supporting our people rather than it just being about Scrum. That's a rather brilliant answer, Saloni. And it's got me thinking about the Agile Manifesto, I suppose, particularly in how that relates to what you were saying, maybe how it relates to less as well. Because values are effectively behaviours. Behaviours that we'd like to see. So when we talk about Agile values, uh, behaviours. And I think that the organisational structures that we can create should enable people to exhibit those types of behaviours. And ultimately, obviously, related to the culture picking up what you said around an organizational structure. Now, principles, I like thinking of principles. I think how D. Hock explains them in his book, One for Many, which is what ought to be. And I think that if you look at some of the principles, it's technical excellence that enables the principles. And so if I can take from that that less as a framework, and this may be my own opinion, it does bring those values and principles together with organizational structure and technical excellence to really enable people to, one, behave in a way which is conducive to what the Agile Manifesto requested, but also help people really achieve what ought to be. Is that something that you can get on board with, or am I just talking tripe? No, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think, um, I think I was quite naive when I started on my Agile journey. I think like a lot of organizations, dare I say it, are. That because when you read the Agile Man and the beauty of the Agile Manifesto is, is simplicity and it's it's so easily easy to grasp. I, I don't think there's much you can misunderstand about the, the intent. And people go, oh, that's really easy. Everyone can do this. Every, everyone can be a bit more agile and we can do that. You can just do that tomorrow if you want, Ben. I'm not going to stop you. And we rely on people's goodwill and their good intentions to just be more agile-like. Change your mindset. How hard can that be? And I think, um, and I think, you know, and I was like that. I was like, oh, well, it's all right. You don't actually have to do scrum. As long as you want to meet someone in the morning and be more collaborative, you're agile. Well done you, right? But I think that's quite naive because until you get the, the, the framework, the governance, the, dare I say, the reward, the way you reward your people, that, that all sitting there, all those, to, to actually exploit that way of working and, and support. I, mean, I don't mean exploit in a negative way, I hope you realise, but, in, in you know, but really support people. So, 
only then can you really genuinely move the dial because um, it's knee-jerk reactions. You can say, you know, be more collaborative, share more, be more transparent then. But if you ultimately don't reward someone for being transparent, for putting their hands up when they've got stuck, that it, it, you're relying on their good human nature. And, and actually, that's a really difficult way for someone to exist in a corporate structure and succeed in a corporate structure. So um, I, I think you do need to embed these in the organisational design. From your experience, how possible is it for people to be successful in a corporate environment when using a framework such as LESS? Oh, um, it's a really difficult one. Again, there is with the best will in the world. I think if you can create like an ecosystem uh, which is protected and your um, upper management, you know, the, the, the people who can make the decisions can protect that, then, then yes, you can do it. You can do it in that bubble. I think you can. But, but, and there are a few disclaimers that that management's got to be around long enough to support it because it it is it can be counterculture um, or feel very alien. Um, so they've got to be around to protect it for long enough to to convince people to trust in it and actually start working in that way to start seeing the results. So I think I have I've genuinely witnessed it. But I think it's really, really hard to um, run a an old-fashioned, dare I say, culture that's built on slightly different values to, to convince it all to move in that way. They'll love looking at aspects of it, but when push comes to shove, they can sometimes reject it because it, it just feels too different um, to, to the way that they, they operate. I was interviewed on a podcast the other day called The, the Delivery Space, and it was a safe versus less question that we were exploring. And I roughly explained the difference between safe and less as safe is more like a coach tour, you know, where you're going to, I don't know, some far flung corner of the world. And you're going to get on a bus and you know where you're going to stop and they're going to drop you off at restaurants and they'll, you know, you may every now and again stop to ask for a toilet break. So maybe you have to diverge a little bit, but you kind of know where you're going and you know you're going to be looked after and you have to think very much, but you get to see the sites and say you've been on holiday. Whereas less is much more like saying you want to go to that same place, but here's a, here's a ruck, here's, here's an empty rucksack. Here's a whole heap of tools you can choose to put in it and figure out what you want to put in there. And if you haven't got what you need along the way, then you've got to think and decide what else you want to put in there to continue on with your trip. And it'd be a very different experience and you end up a very different person at the end. They're both situations where you're trying to get from A to B. You're just doing it very differently. And I think that from our from our experience, I think a lot of large organizations, particularly suppose the large banks that we worked in, were more inclined to go for an easy coach tour and the holiday rather than actually saying, right, okay, well, what do we put in this rucksack? What even yeah, what even size rucksack do we need? Do we where, where are we gonna stop? It just isn't something which people have been keen to do, I think, because it takes so much more effort. Yeah, and, and also um, it's quite funny. I always talk about this, um, the the advent of the, the Agile coach is quite an interesting thing because I don't think anyone, when they sat down and wrote, wrote the Agile manifesto, actually realised that there was going to be this massive um community or this, this this job description of agile coach right if you look if you look at scrum you know we talk about the product owner and the team and, and the scrum master yet agile coach is it, it has has really come into its own and i'm like well why is that and i think a lot of big companies want to outsource that thinking they want to outsource the thinking of 
I don't know, I know I need to go agile, but I don't really know what that means. So I'm going to invest in some agile coach. They're going to make the decision making for me. They're going to do the thinking for me. And I think that's why there's such an explosion of so many training courses as well, because it almost likes says, if they can pass that test, then I know they're going to do agile. So brilliant. Let, let, let's go and let, let's invest in, let, let's make a decision through that avenue. Whereas the reality of agility is it's continuous improvement. It's continuous learning. It's a learning culture. And I think that, that, that's a very different story to most large corporates. I mean, if you, if you, if you go to a director in a large bank and say, right, you need to learn something now. You need to actually go and learn more stuff. I think someone find that quite scary because one of the reasons they have got to that position or a senior position is because they know stuff. They're awarded for knowing stuff. So I think this is one of the, the problems we find in large organizations that humility, do I say, like saying, actually, we don't know it and we're going to invest in a learning culture and we're going to go on the journey with us. It's a very different way of um, engaging with your staff to how you've done it historically when you kind of knew everything. So, yeah, I, I don't know if I've rambled a bit there, but, I, but that's a, but that's kind of there's something in my head about that, about how corporates um, go for agility. And so therefore seeing something that's quite neat and tidy and boxed and with answers and tick boxes just feels safer. It feels much more comforting than something which has a big question mark. Well, I can't, I can't believe you said the H word. The H word. You said humble. Humble, humility. That's your, that's your influence. No, it was really funny. As you were, as you were talking, it, it did remind me of an excerpt from Humble Leadership by uh, Shine, where he talks about in, for, humi- for humility in organisations to be successful, people need not to be rewarded based upon the amount of information or knowledge that they hold to themselves. Appreciating that they have to learn because they are not the complete picture. Second, yeah. appreciating that in order to succeed in a complex environment where things will change, actually, we are dependent upon others to achieve our goal. This isn't about, dare I say it, the, I mean, generally speaking, the alpha male in an organization standing there beating his chest with all the information, keeping it to themselves and keeping everybody in line in order to really untap the potential of teams. I think that it, yeah. it does take a very different approach. It does. But then you've, you've got to have sympathy, sympathy with that alpha male or that person you've described because the whole of their career, they have been told this is how you are successful. And this is how organizations used to be successful, right? I have been in, in meetings where we talked about, you know, talent and, and how we grow talent and, and what do we actually think is talent. And still today, you know, people who have large portfolios, large teams who are still at the front leading their teams is still in some organizations seen, you know, the person who is the expert, the SME, you know, we talk about that. You could see them as the SME or you could see them as a single point of failure because they haven't divulged the information. So as long as you set up going back to those structures, as long as the organizational design is designed in such a way that you reward uh, this person not being an SME because they've held on to the information, but because they are helping their team, you will get that because I do genuinely believe inherently people are good people and they want to help and they want to be quite teamy. But you've got to look at what they're being rewarded for. So you've got to understand the system in which they've been created, I suppose, and start looking at disassembling it a little bit. So you've mentioned structure a few times. Have you got any examples which you can share verbally, because sharing pictures won't really work, um, that describe or articulate the types of structural changes that you have made 
in your time in, in these large banks that have been successful? Yeah, successful is an interesting word. How, how have you described successful? So um, on paper, successful. So let, let me talk about one I can think of. Um, so there was one in a technology department where we went in, and I think there was like a 126 distinct technology products, uh, an enormous amount, and they were all being seen as, as separate products. Um, so I think you know this, you know, with every product, you almost get a silo. So you're almost looking at 126 silos. And then even within those, if you think about this as lines of code, all the teams working separately, you've got silos within silos. So one of the first things we did was go in and try to design products where we brought this together. This is a less huge adoption for, for those who know. And so we managed to get those 126 um, products into four products initially. Um, and then, and then those four went into three. So, I can see, and I think uh, you could see from a technical perspective, how that made complete sense. If you just look purely at the code and you look purely at the way that the components work, absolutely, it was kind of like a no-brainer. No one could actually argue against it. So yes, success, right? That That is successful because now you have, you have broken those silos up and you've shown the um, potential to bring these things together as, as, as products. But you've got to, when I talk about, is it, was it successful? It was really hard and really painful for the people who were involved in it because up to that date all the structures had been supporting this single way of working you know you can be your you know this is your own product your own your own your own product owner this is your destiny and we're rewarding you on all these deliveries you're making and suddenly now we're asking them to come together work together potentially deliver slower because they're now p- part of a bigger system so it depends what you're measuring right um so and it's so and it depends what's the outcome that you're optimizing for our optimization goal at the time was to bring these products together and we met that that optimization goal but there was huge fallout and we had to talk a lot to the teams about the the, that we knew what would was going to drop and how to support the people but it's stuff like that's quite terrifying for some people was it worth it (laughs) <laughs> again, it depends who's asking. So uh, again, we were in a corporate environment. So you've got to remember cost is king. Um, one of the reasons we did this was because we were too expensive. Um, and uh, I know cost should never, you know, we all say it should never be the driver of stuff, but it's, it, it, you know, it does justify us being around. So from that perspective, uh, did we say, did we, we, did we manage to bring the cost down because we could stop a lot of stuff that we didn't need to do because we could finally see the priorities? Absolutely. Absolutely. We did really brilliantly. Um, and we, we really sort of did avert. I mean, it meant that we didn't have to make some redundancies in some areas. It meant we could grow in some areas. I mean, that was the fun bit. It meant we could actually go out and hire people. So th- that was fantastic for us, right? That was good. Um, sorry, I've kind of lost the question. Remind me again. What was the question? I was wondering, yeah, was it successful? Was it was it worth it, the upheaval? <laughs> yeah. So, so from that perspective, yes, from that measure, it was successful. The The difficulty was actually getting the organisation to recognise what we did and accept it because it meant so many changes of behaviour, not just for our teams, but also for teams who engaged with us. Uh, because everyone had to work that bit harder. And so there was, you know, there was resentment about people who had been product owners and now were no longer product owners. Uh, there were there was resentment about teams having to pull other teams alongside because they, you know, they weren't 
originally part of a team. So I think it was a costly trans transformation to use a, a you know one of the one of the the words we used at work. But from a cost perspective, uh, it, it was it was a success. I think I personally think it was the right thing for, to do for people's growth because if you're really going to say you're an agile, you work in an agile environment. This is an agile environment. This is true agility. This is what Scrum looks like. This is what multi-team Scrum looks like. But there are a number of people who found that very very difficult because that's not the environment in which they grew up in. Oh, so much, so many questions, so much in my head. So a statement followed by a question. Okay. I could abstract from what you were saying, and maybe this is my own confirmation bias because this is a topic, a thing that I'm exploring in my own mind at the moment, which is when we start looking at less or less huge and we're going to be changing organizational structure and consequently, consequently the culture, what often we have to do is to do the opposite to what people think Agile is about. People think Agile is about empowerment and autonomy, but it's empowerment and autonomy that put you in a really crap position often in organizations when it's given to too many people. And as a consequence, it's just very difficult to align upon. So when we're beginning to say, well, you are not going to be a product owner, you know, in inverted uh, brackets there, perhaps yeah, they never were, from a less perspective, doesn't matter, they're feeling a change. And you're going to be you have a different role, or you team aren't going to own this particular very narrow component anymore. You're going to be working as part of a larger thing. Actually, what you're doing with people, you're taking away their autonomy. You're taking away their ability to achieve mastery, you know, and that will affect their purpose as well. You know, how much everybody? You know, I'm kind of picking out some of the damn pink motivational stuff here, and that really hits people at the core. And what we're doing is we're exchanging that for something else. And it's and for me, one of the biggest challenges I think that maybe we've faced, and I still see to this day in many organizations, is how do you help people on that journey? And one of the things which I know that we spent, I'm gonna say far too much time on for not enough effect, which makes me wonder why I'm now doing this as a little side project with someone to look at um less job descriptions. How do role descriptions, job descriptions well, how have you found they've helped or hindered on that, that journey you've spoken about or, or a similar one? It's funny, job descriptions, I, I jump on that because I said, I said one of my roles was head of talent um, <clears throat> in one of these departments. And so I did have to look at job descriptions. We have to have job descriptions. It's, 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 it's what we need to have. Um, so I rewrote the job description. So rather it just, I called it a roles and interactions uh, rather than a description. So, and I broke it into sort of a number of sections. It was like, what are the outcomes this role is trying to achieve? Because I think that is the key because it goes back to your empowerment thing. It's like, as long as you understand what outcomes you are trying to achieve, I am going to give you the space to, to, to do them the way that you want to. And then there's a few bullet points about what success looks like. Like, how, how do you know you're doing a good job? Like, you know, what are we looking at? What are, what, what can, and these could be cultural indicators. We, you know, we won't talk about, it doesn't have to be like KPIs. Um, I also put uh, then, then a behavioral thing. It's sort of like, if you saw me in the office, this is how you know I'm doing my job. What would you see me doing? So as a scrum master, what might you see me doing? Examples. So that, you know, I walk in and go, oh, that must be the scrum master. That must be the product owner. That's something. But also really importantly, what, what do I not do? 
Um, so, so, cause I think that's also key as well. It's like, what, what, what does a scrum master not do or a product owner not do or should not do? Um, and the other bit, the interactions bit was quite key. Who do I interact with on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly, whatever, um, basis? And I think by making the job description much more like this, much more like a, something which is more of a living document that I can look at it and I can, okay, I can imagine this role and bring it to life, I think is more valuable. And it also allows that person to see. So let's take that example. I said somebody, you know, um, Jane was a product owner previously, but actually in, in my and yours definition, she was not a product owner. Okay. So now she's going to be um, an, another role, a team member, let's say. And, and, and we can go through that and hopefully she will see through her education, she's, she's equally, if not more empowered to do more stuff. She can, she can work wider. She can still work with a product, the product owner, but she'll also see the difference between what a true product owner could do and maybe what she was doing thinking she was the product owner and she couldn't do or she you know so I think part of that education is taking them on the journey and getting them to own that document and, and bring it to life and challenge it and it we keep refining it we keep, you know this continuous improvement thing right but I, I think something like that um, actually fulfilled the criteria is I made sure I worked with HR as well you know so that we made sure that from a corporate perspective we covered all the basis but actually from an agility perspective it also worked because it allowed us to do that continuous improvement and and, and bring it to life and I think sometimes that's what's missing a little bit is the practitioner bit when people talk about agility a lot of people are very good at talking about the theory um, but it's also having the ability to say, okay, what does that actually mean? What does a role of Scrum Master mean? Which is actually one of the most difficult roles, I think, in some ways to describe. But what does it mean in your context? So let's write that. In our context, this is what we think the Scrum Master should do. And then we set them up for success. So that's that's one of the one of the I think one of the most successful artifacts, I suppose, that I helped create. And I, I continue to use it to today, even in this aviation role that I've been talking about, which is nothing to do with agility, some of these roles. But but bringing it something to life as roles and interactions, I think is, is, is um, I think, quite useful. So like a roles and interactions document, which you could call a raid if you wanted to. <laughs> Just to things. Um, no, don't, don't, don't call it raid. Don't call it raid. <laughs> so that was uh outcome purpose behaviors what would you observe me doing and not doing and the interactions hmm. it's a good starter for 10 yeah it's a really good starter for 10 did people warm to it i think so um we used it as an experiment because again i'm a big lover of this idea of experiments that we have in less um in one department and it seemed to work quite well. And so we rolled it out to future departments as well. And I think what was nice is people would pick up and own it and, and want to, 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 you know, refine it and stuff. But I, I think it worked pretty well because we didn't end up having these conversations like raids. I mean, I remember, and you remember this too, um, there was an instant quite early, one of the times that you and I were working on job descriptions. Do you remember when it was truly a job description and we had to work with another team and they wanted us to do a raid log. Do you remember this? And it was like, well, who's responsible for this department d d decision? And who's it? And it was, it was really painful, wasn't it, Ben? And I think that's the problem with its roles and responsibilities. I think if you take the word responsibilities out and you realize that the, some of these are sort of joint and actually it's more about the interactions than it is anything else, the, this conversation about raid starts disappearing, I think. Well, do you know, this is a... Uh... I said, when you say raid, it says it's uh, more of a racy 
a roles accountability yeah um the classic all these lovely acronyms um <laughs> and so concludes episode one episode two will be following up quickly behind it so don't forget to subscribe as to not miss the next installment if you like this episode i really recommend checking out my conversation with the brilliant john coleman on agile islands as this is a great approach when you are faced with the same challenges Saloni and i had to deal with Thanks for listening. 